About 30 years ago, when I was in sixth grade, I had something memorable happen to me here. And uh, when I say here, I mean literally right here in this exact spot in front of this stage. Uh, One night, uh, for some reason, I was hanging out with a group of other sixth graders here in this room. And one of the girls, whose name was Holly, uh, held up a picture of uh, a young man. And she said, look at my new boyfriend. Do you guys see my new boyfriend? Isn't he cute? Isn't he just adorable? And she kept gushing on and on and on about this guy, and it made me sick. <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what it was that I said, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I called him ugly. And she stomped over to me, and out of nowhere, she kicked me really, really hard. And for a few minutes, I was down. But I got back up again. And I waited. And I watched. And when the moment was exactly right and she wasn't looking, I ran up behind her. I grabbed the picture out of her hand. And I ripped her boyfriend in half and threw the pieces down on the floor. And she fell to the ground. And she started crying and yelling. And she was sort of picking the pieces up together. And I took off. I ran out those doors down those stairs, down into the fellowship hall, which is next to the kitchen. It was totally dark down there, and I hid in the corner. (laughs) And do you know how I felt? I felt so good. Oh, it felt great. Revenge was so sweet. I felt so justified, and, and, and it was good to be in sixth grade and to enjoy that sort of thing. But then I heard some commotion coming into the kitchen, and I could see into the kitchen. The light turned on. They couldn't they couldn't see me, and, and it was uh, a youth leader coming in who I really liked and uh, respected a lot. He walked into the kitchen, and along with him, there was like this group of girls, and Holly was with them, and she was sobbing, and, and they were talking, all of them, about me and how terrible this thing was that I had done and what a bad guy I was. And, and I remember that uh, when their conversation finished, the girls kind of left, and this youth leader started, I could hear him walking throughout the building, Uh, calling out for me to come out and and talk with him as I hid there alone in the dark. And at that point, revenge didn't feel so good anymore. Uh, In fact, revenge felt very bad. I felt horrible. Uh, But what I really felt that day as I look back on it now, even though then it just felt bad, is as I can see that I was feeling two separate things at that time. The first thing that I was feeling was guilt, and the second thing that I was feeling was shame. And those two things are often uh, seem to be kind of the same thing, but it it turns out that in reality, there are two things that are very different from each other. And and I thought it might be helpful this morning, just for a couple of minutes, to, to explain the differences between those two things, guilt and shame. Most of us have a pretty good idea of what uh, guilt is. It's a feeling that we get when we sense that we violated some sort of a standard in life. And so you might think of the image as guilt as, of guilt as being a person who has done something wrong, and now they're standing in front of a judge, and the judge points down at some kind of a legal book and, and, and says to them, listen, the law is right here. It's very clear on what you've done, and you failed and violated it at some point, and now you are responsible for that. And the expectation, then, is that there would be a consequence of some kind that would be on its way. Guilt results from a violation of a standard, 
And, and I knew as I sat there that it was wrong to tear up Holly's picture no matter what. And so I felt guilty. But I also experienced that night shame, which is, which is something else. Now, shame can run parallel to guilt, but it's a poison of a different kind. Uh, there was a Christian psychologist who defined shame this way. I think it's a good definition. He said, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human. And, he says, and this part's really important, there are witnesses. He says that those people who experience shame, what they will feel is exposed and humiliated and disgraced and less than human. And, And that's exactly how I felt in the fellowship hall that night. Holly thought that I was a disgusting human being. And and I didn't care what she thought. But the herd of girls who were with her in sixth grade, I did care what all of them thought. And I also cared about what this youth leader thought, who I respected so much. And what I knew was that they'd seen something really, really bad inside of me. And I felt very ashamed. Now, some more distinctions between guilt and shame. Whereas guilt is something that's experienced privately, usually, shame is something that's always experienced publicly. If guilt is a sense of legal violation, then shame is a sense of social violation. And if guilt is between me and my judge, then shame is between me and all of my community. If guilt is experienced over something that you've done, the violation of a standard, then shame is experienced over something that you feel that you are. You feel that you're unlovable or worthless or less than or dirty. And I think you might be able to think of guilt and shame as being like fraternal twins. Okay? They're not identical twins in many ways, but they do come to they do tend to kind of come together in life as a pair. And and obviously I don't even need to say it this morning, the damage that guilt and shame can cause in a person's life is unmeasurable. Now, the Bible, in many ways, is a book that chronicles the human experience of guilt and shame. And right at the start, it informs us of the origins of both of those things. Near the beginning of the Bible, we learn about a great act of betrayal against God. Adam and Eve reject God, they turn their backs on their own creator, and they treat God as if he is their enemy, even though he has only treated them as if they were his friends. And as a result of this sin, this betrayal, guilt and shame surge into the world like a hurricane. And Adam and Eve and every person who's ever come since has been touched by them profoundly and disastrously. But even though the guilt has a, excuse me, even though the Bible has a tremendous amount of information to to say about guilt and, and shame, that is not the main message of the Bible. The main message of the Bible is about love. 
But it's not just any kind of love. It's not just a generic, everyday love that we might think of when we think of love. It's a love that is so high and so deep and so wide. A love that is so perfect and so costly that it is capable of overcoming even the most severe and painful and tragic experiences of guilt and shame. And this love is the foundation for God's great plan of redemption, the gospel. The gospel springs from the love of God. Uh, A few uh, weeks ago, I I read a story that um, just came to mind for me as I was thinking about these things this week. It's it's a um, sports story. And it's interesting because it's a sports story that for once is not about a player. It's actually about a fan. A great baseball fan who was 26 years old at the time. Big fan of the Chicago Cubs. And his name was Steve Bartman. Uh, on October 14, 2003, uh, Steve happened to be at the game in the stands when the Cubs were in the eighth, winning of, uh, eighth inning excuse me, of, of game six of the National League Championship Series against the Florida Marlins. And uh, Chicago, his team, was ahead 3-0, to zero, very likely to win the game. And, and they hadn't been to, to the World Series, they hadn't won the World Series in like 100 years or something like this at the time. So there was a lot of enthusiasm with those fans. And, and so now they're, they're in the field, right? There's two outs, the Cubs are in the field, there's two outs, and they're just about to finish off the inning. When this happens, if you can take a look at this picture here. Uh, Right up there, the man in the headphones with the Cubs hat, that is Steve Bartman. And what had happened is one of the Marlin batters hit the ball, which was very nearly caught by this Cubs outfielder to finish up the inning. But Steve Bartman also tried to catch that ball, and, and, and he interfered with the game. And the guy who was the player ended up missing the ball. And to make a long story short, that interference by Steve Bartman turned the entire tide of the game. The Cubs went from winning, from, from being ahead in the game, three to nothing, to losing that game eight to three, and then they went on to lose the entire series as well. And guess who was blamed for their loss? Steve Bartman. Now, things actually got very serious. Uh, during the game, his, his mistake, his interference was played again and again at the stadium, and it was played again and again on national TV. And, and people started coming over to Steve during the rest of the, the game to chew him out, and the crowd, anytime his face would come up, would, would start to boo him. And it got so bad that he actually had to be escorted from the game by security guards. And as he left... And you can watch this if you go to YouTube. The, the crowd was chanting profanities at him and throwing garbage at him. Somebody throws a, a beer that splashes all over him, and, and he's, just, he's just trying to, to hide his face and protect himself and get out of that ballpark. And he did. He made it out of the stadium. But unfortunately, his name and address was posted online by uh, an angry fan. And at one point, six police cars had to be stationed at his house in order to protect his family. Believe it or not, the governor of of Illinois publicly suggested that Steve join the witness protection program. And 
Jeb Bush offered him asylum in the state of Florida. Now, right after the event, about 24 hours later, Steve issued an apology. And and by the way, Steve was a great guy. There were lots of, of really impressive things about Steve. This is one of them. He, he, he issues this apology, and he says, There are few words to describe how awful I feel and what I've experienced within these last 24 hours. I am so truly sorry from the bottom of this Cubs fan's broken heart. Steve issued that apology, and then he went totally underground. He disappeared for Years, nobody ever heard anything from him. And over those years, some people defended him and other people ridiculed him, but he stayed totally invisible. In fact, he turned down hundreds of thousands of dollars that were offered to him in interviews and, and book deals, but I guess it was just too much for him. He, he felt so bad and so ashamed and so humiliated, he, he wouldn't uh, share his face in public. Now, that was 2003. Fast forward to 2016, 13 years later. Yeah, that's 13. Thank you. (laughs) Finally, after I think 108 years, the Cubs won the World Series. You remember that? Big deal, a lot of celebration. Steve wasn't there at the parade, of, of course, when that happened. However, less than two months ago, this year, on July 31st, 2017, something I think truly remarkable happened. The owner of the Cubs, Tom Ricketts, presented publicly Steve Barton. Steve wasn't there, but he presented it so that the public would know with a gift. He gave Steve Bartman a gift, and along with the gift, he made this statement. We hope this provides closure on an unfortunate chapter of the story that is perpetuated throughout our quest to win a long-awaited World Series. While no gesture can fully lift the public burden he has endured for more than a decade, we felt it was important Steve knows he has been and continues to be fully embraced by this organization. After all he has sacrificed, we are proud to recognize Steve Bartman with this gift today. The gift that was given to Steve Bartman was an official Chicago Cubs 2016 World Series championship ring. The real thing. I think you felt, like I did, very touched and moved and surprised by that story. I thought that was such an awesome thing to do. I was happy to hear that Steve accepted that ring and was grateful that for that ring. And in a small way, that story reminds me of exactly what we're talking about today. Because the gospel tells us that God did something a little like this for us in a much greater way. Something remarkable. Something that should be for us totally unexpected and very, very moving. A great act of love and and compassion and and grace that lifts our burden too, our our burden of guilt and shame. And he did something that nobody would ever have even thought to think of or ask him to do. 
And I think in such a wonderful way, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, what we find is we find the Apostle Paul just exulting in this. We, 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 we find here, I think, something that captures just sort of the surprise and the wonder of it all. So I want you to join me again, if you would, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What I think happens in this passage is, is I think that Paul takes, takes just a, a little bit of time to marvel about a few things. And, and first of all, he marvels that Christ came to die for us. Christ came to die for sinners. He came to stand in the place of any person, any person who would put their trust in him. Jesus was the only one who ever lived who did not have any guilt or shame of his own, but who instead came into the world to take ours and to carry it upon himself as if it were his own. Jesus became the scapegoat, the Bible teaches, for all of our guilt and sin. Shame talks about being exposed and contaminated and made to be less than human. And the Bible teaches that Jesus took our shame. He was exposed to and contaminated by our sin. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father, the righteous judge of every human heart, pounded down his heavenly gavel and declared Jesus guilty so that he could declare us innocent. The great act of love that overcomes the power of guilt and shame was nothing less than the death of God's own son. Who could have seen that coming? I think Paul writes these words because that just kind of boggles his mind. He just stops for a minute to try to comprehend that. In fact, Paul, you, you sort of sense in reading this here that, that, that Paul is, is kind of getting at on the side that it almost seems irrational that Jesus would die for sinners. If he had come to die for perfect, put-together, deserving, righteous people, then maybe that would have made a little bit more sense. But there aren't any people like that. Every person is full of guilt. Every person is full of shame. There are only sinners. And so instead, he came to die, verse 6 tells us, for weak and ungodly people. Uh, People like Adam and Eve and all of us who've turned our backs on God. People who have betrayed God and become his enemies. Jesus came to die not for righteous people. He came to die for sinners And this, I think, kind of jolts Paul. I think he sort of has to work out his thinking process here, and he kind of does a double take, right? So should we. Tom Rickles giving Steve Bartman a Super Bowl ring is nothing 
compared to what God has done for us. It should jolt us. It should surprise us. It should be the most remarkable thing we've ever heard and have ever believed. And it ought to make us ask the question, why would he do it? Why would he do it? Unfortunately, Paul anticipates that very same question, and he answers it before we can even ask it. He did it, Paul says in verse 8, for one simple reason, and that is because he loves us. In spite of all of our guilt and shame, we are loved. And we know this, Paul says, because God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect expression of the love of God, Paul says, is the cross. There was another story that I read in the news more recently this week, and it's really a horrible one. It's, uh, it was a story about an 11-year-old boy who was in Italy uh, hiking at a volcano, volcanic crater with his family. And the boy um, struck, snuck into a restricted area, and he fell into boiling mud and was killed. The story gets worse. His parents went after him to try to rescue him, and they fell in and died as well. It's a, it's a crushing story, and I felt sick when I read it. But I have to admit, I didn't just feel sick. I felt sick, and I felt sad, but I felt something else at the same time, too, when I, when I read this. I felt inspired when I thought about these parents. Because I thought to myself, man, I would want to make exactly the same decision that they did if something like that happened to one of my kids too. I mean, the parents must have known in a way the 11-year-old couldn't what the danger was that they were walking into. But but that kind of love risks everything. I mean, that's the kind of love that that considers only the need of the other person. And that's, that's a love that is willing to accept death if that's what needs be. And these parents obviously loved their son so well in the end, and there's nobody who could ever say otherwise, right? Who could possibly accuse these two parents of being uncaring or indifferent towards their son? The extent of their love was proven literally by fire on that crater that day. And likewise, what Paul tells us is that the the fullness, the richness, the, the vastness and vibrancy and brilliance of God's love for us was proven to, well, on the cross, when we were still sinners, he bled for us. And that in spite of all of our guilt and shame, and in fact, to remove all of our guilt and shame, Jesus died for us. And I think part of Paul's point here is, so how could we ever doubt that? How could we ever doubt, if we look at the cross, that Jesus loves us greatly? But, let's be honest, we do doubt God sometimes, don't we? We do doubt that love. Don't you? Maybe you're struggling with that even even right now. You're, You're wondering if... You have 100% of God's love because maybe it it only feels like you've got 80 or 30 or or 20 or less. 
Have you ever talked to a, a new Christian and gotten a little jealous? Uh, maybe it's somebody who's just realized that these things are true for the very first time, and they went through their whole life always thinking that God could never accept them because of the, the things that they have done. But, but then now, just now, they've, they've come to discover that God really has completely forgiven them in Christ. He's removed all of their burden, and they are just glowing. They're bursting with God's love for them. And, and, and you sit and you talk to them and you're so happy for them. But part of you thinks to yourself, man, I used to be that excited. You know, I, I used to have that kind of joy and, and that kind of confidence that God loved me like that. And maybe you think back to the time that you first trusted Christ and, and you remember your enthusiasm and the assurance that you had but, but you just don't feel it quite so strongly now. And, and you think there must be something wrong. And, and maybe you wonder, does, does God still love me that way? Are all of those things that I believed way back then still true today? And what Paul does next is he speaks to that. He talks to a person who's struggling with those things. And I have to tell you, it's tremendously encouraging. Let's read what comes next. It comes in the next two verses Verses 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, what is Paul getting at here? Well, what he's doing is he's making a certain kind of an argument. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Okay, it's really important to understand this. An argument from greater to lesser. So let me give you an example of this kind of argument. If a wife were to say to her husband, Honey, you graduated from the University of Michigan with a degree in computer science. Can't you figure out how to program the VCR? Right? That's an argument from greater to lesser, okay? What she's suggesting is that if he can do this great big thing, graduate from the University of Michigan with a degree in computer science, then it makes sense that he should be able to do this little thing like program the VCR. Right? That's, that's the argument. Another example would be this, would be if the man were to turn back to her and, and say to her, honey, you are a vice president at Comcast. We haven't used VCRs in 15 years. That's a cable box, honey. <laughs> that also is an argument from greater to lesser. Okay, does that all make sense? You guys get the idea. What Paul does here is he makes an argument from greater to lesser. And his point here is basically this. He says, if... God loved you enough to die for you while you were still his enemy. Then why would he treat you any differently now that you're his friend? He says, if Jesus cared so much about you that he allowed himself to be crucified for you while you were still lost in your sin and your guilt and your shame and you were far away from him, then now that he's restored you and brought you close, 
How much less difficult is it for him to keep you there? If God offers grace to his enemies, then how much more does he offer to his friends? Paul's argument. Actually, it's only the first part. Because the argument gets even richer. He makes a second argument here from, from greater to lesser. And he says this too. He says, if Jesus would do all of this for you through his death, then just think how much more he will do for you through his life. If Jesus accomplished all of these things for you by hanging on a cross in shame, Paul says, just think what he's capable of accomplishing for you now that he sits on his throne in glory. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has already done all the hard part and we can trust in his love now because he proved it then in a much greater way. I remember when I was in sixth grade, again, all of those years ago in the, in the fellowship hall, as I hid there in the dark, I could hear my youth leader again, as I said, wandering throughout the building, asking me to come out. And, and in the dark, when I was sitting there in my guilt and, and my shame, I had to decide, am I going to trust him? Am I going to trust him? Am I going to come out? Or am I just going to stay right where I am? And if you are a child of God in this room, if God has made you one of his children, then what that must mean is that there was a time in your life when you trusted him in the dark. There was a time that you stepped out of the shadows And you came and stood before God with all of your guilt and all of your shame still upon you. And you laid it down at the feet of Jesus and you asked Jesus to forgive you. And and Jesus did that. Jesus did not reject you. In fact, he accepted you with joy and celebration. He poured out his grace and his his mercy and his compassion and his forgiveness into your, your life. Do you remember that, some of you? You remember how wonderful that felt? You felt like a new person, a new creation you were. Your entire identity changed at that moment. You, on that day, trusted him. And I want you to remember how confident you felt in his love for you, if you can remember that day. I don't remember that day personally, but I know what happened. And what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, listen, if you can trust him then, while you were still in the shadows, then how much more can you trust him now that he's brought you out into the light? And what I really hope today stirs right out of this passage, because I think it's the the reason that Paul wrote this, is I hope that you will leave here feeling exceedingly confident of God's love for you. Exceedingly. Not because your emotions have been stirred up or because you've felt something that, that maybe you haven't felt for a little while. 
But I hope you feel exceedingly confident of God's love for you because that love was tested. And it was proven through fire on the cross. And a love like that, a love that can withstand the cross, is a love that will certainly always endure. And that's God's love for you right here, right now, today and always. Let's pray. Father, somebody said today that the words in these in this passage, the words that were written in this section of Romans must be the best words that we could ever hear in all of our lives. And I think that that's true. God showed his love for us in this, that he sent his son to die in our place for our sins. And we thank you for that this morning. Some of us haven't really thought for a, a long time maybe about that time, if, if, if we can remember it, when we trusted just that, when we brought to you our guilt, our shame, our sense of worthlessness, our sense of failure, our failure to meet the mark, our sense maybe even of being less than human, of being dirty and contaminated. And you could have rejected us. In fact, you should have rejected us on that day, but you didn't. You, you, you threw your arms wide open for each one, and you sent your son to die to make that possible. And we just want to stop now this morning and, and thank you for that. Thank you that you can make us acceptable in your sight in Christ and, and that we can go from being your enemies to being your friends again. Thank you that we can count on your love. We thank you that your love is, is not just a, a, an expression of words, but it's tied to an actual event, the Son of God bleeding and dying for us. Thank you for giving us that proof. I pray today that for anyone in here who has trusted that, that, that they would leave here confident in it still. And I pray today perhaps for those who may be here who are still hiding in the dark. Maybe they still feel rejected by you or that whatever it is that they've done could not be forgiven. Maybe they're not sure that they can trust you. Maybe they're not sure that you're a loving God. I pray that they would hear your voice calling to them, offering, inviting in grace, step out of the, the dark and to be made clean and pure at no cost to them, but only at the cost your son paid on the cross. We thank you this morning that you are such a God of love. No one can ever question that. Help us in our hearts to recognize that and embrace that and help us to love you in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.